Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. We are very excited to be hosting a special podcast episode brought to you by the ATS Critical Care Assembly. My name is David Forfaro. I'm on the Critical Care Assembly Program Committee and the chair of the subcommittee on education and critical care. Uh, and it's a real pleasure to be doing this today. And I'm doing it along with my co-host, Rainia Estedi. Rainia is an assistant professor of internal medicine at Central Michigan University and is also on the Critical Care Program Committee for 2024. She's also on the subcommittee for education, and we're about to hear some exciting case reports. Rainy, are you ready? Hi, Dave. Yes, I'm really excited to be hosting this podcast with you. Actually, my first one, so it's pretty exciting. I'm really excited to hear about these top cases today. One of the um, missions of the subcommittee on education and critical care, or more known as SECC, is to really maximize the quality of critical care case reports that are submitted to ATS. We tend to hear amazing cases every single year. We really want to give recognition to those even beyond the conference. And this is exactly what we're doing here. And this is how we're going to be doing it via this podcast. Take it away, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, in the past few years, we've really tried to formalize in the critical care assembly a good assessment rubric for case report, make the quality really good. We've added some poster discussion sessions. So a lot of these top case reports weren't just in a poster, but then we would talk about them, some experts would weigh in, and those sessions have been really great, fostering some great discussions. This year, if you're listening, that November is going to be when the case reports are due. We're going to be offering some guidance for folks who want to submit but may not have enough mentorship at their own institution. So you can submit to have your case report reviewed by one of the members of the Critical Care Assembly and provide some feedback. And we'll be giving preference to international applicants from community institutions and those with English as a second language. So if you're interested, definitely after this podcast, head to the Critical Care Assembly website. And as Rania said, behind these efforts, we want these podcasts and some tutorials to come out to really continue to highlight this, these great reports. And if your submission is one of the top ones this next year, then you'll be joining us here on the podcast next year. So a lot to look forward to. These are all great efforts, Dave, and I'm really excited all this innovation that ATS has put through. Such great opportunities for those as well, such as the mentorship that you just uh, mentioned. So we'll go ahead and start. Today, we're going to highlight two of our top cases from 2023. We'll be highlighting these incredible cases as well as the presenters in a series of tweets. So please follow us on a at ATS Crit Care. We're gonna go ahead and dive into our first case report. To start us off today, we have Jack Zhao. Jack is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the University of Chicago and actually submitted and presented this case as a resident. So a good reminder that case reports are welcome from trainees and practicing physicians of all levels. Welcome, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me. Jack, your submission was called Disseminated Monkeypox as a possible cause of acute respiratory distress syndrome. Tell us about the case. Absolutely. So we had a 40-year-old uh, gentleman with uh, poorly controlled HIV with a CD4 count under 50, asthma COPD, who presents with worsening rash. Of note, he was recently admitted at a different hospital. He was diagnosed with MPOX at that admission and had completed a course of tecoveramat. He was restarted on his antiretrovirals at that time. He was discharged, but after getting home for a couple of days, he noticed worsening rash, worsening fatigue, worsening groin pain, and rectal pain. So he represented to our hospital. With us, he actually had almost completed a second course of tecoveramat, 
when he suddenly had acute respiratory, hypoxic respiratory failure, uh, requiring high flow nasal cannula and uh, admission to the medical ICU. He remained on um, high flow for several days. Initially, we didn't quite know what to make of it. Uh, it was concerning from, for immune reconstitution, inflammatory syndrome. Uh, he had received a transfusion, so transfusion-related acute lung injury was on our differential as well as transfusion-associated uh, cardiac overload. He was managed empirically and supportively, but he did progress. He was ultimately first intubated because of altered mental status. Sorry, let me say that again. He was first intubated because for mental status purposes, but eventually progressed to ARDS, requiring 100% FiO2, uh, proning, paralysis, and inhaled epoprostenol. Uh, during this time, we restarted a third a course of tecoviramat. We obviously did all the uh, standard workup that we would do, including BALs, repeat CTs, and a full infectious workup, both invasively and non-invasively. Besides some mild CMV viremia, we didn't identify any other causative organism. Of note, MPOX did grow. His MPOX test was positive again on a mini BAL. And throughout this time, a, his rash progressed. So in addition to this third course of tecoviramat, he received this vaccinia uh, immunoglobulin twice. In addition to broad-spectrum antibiotics, antifungals, he got steroids for both kind of PJP empirically as well as ARTS, and he got gancyclovir for the CMV just in case. He may have improved from a rash and respiratory perspective, but unfortunately had an aspiration event. During this prolonged stay, he had already required more pressors and progressed to renal failure. So after a prolonged course in the ICU, there was goals of care discussions and ultimately we were transferred to comfort care. Thank you, Jack. Definitely a very complex case with a lot of infectious and non-infectious differential right there. I know that there are some great images from this case of the CT scan and how this progressed throughout the hospitalization. We will share those online, but can you just give us a walk through these findings and how his imaging progressed on the later CT images? Yeah, absolutely. We were lucky enough to have kind of a baseline CT from a few years ago, a CT on admission, and then a CT well into his hospital course, including into his ICU course. So initially, his CT was relatively stable. It showed apical bolus emphysema that looked relatively stable, but preserved lung architecture throughout and no significant kind of abnormalities. After his ICU emission, intubation, and ARDS, we see worsening emphysema. We see diffuse ground glass opacities throughout both lungs and dense consolidations at the bases with the right greater than left with very prominent airways, probably a combination of traction bronchiectasis and some air bronchograms. Of note, it's important to note on this CT, we didn't see any intraluminal lesions. We didn't see any of that on bronchoscopy. We had a similar case at the same time where we did see intraluminal lesions and airway lesions. So that's important to think about in these patients with MPOX. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, I think having ARDS due to a condition that is rare, new, or even unfamiliar can be extremely scary and very humbling 
when you're an intensivist. So can you tell us a little bit about the treatments that we should know about for severe monkeypox with respiratory failure that presented in this way? Absolutely. Obviously, this is earlier on. Uh, so we rely, as we always do in the medical ICU, on a multidisciplinary team, including infectious disease, who reached out to the CDC during this time. So it's a team effort. Treatments for MPOX are obviously not well studied. We do not have clinical trials. These are all extrapolated from kind of smallpox data and animal studies. Immunocompetent patients without severe disease, uh, treatment is supportive. You don't necessarily need to prescribe anything. Uh, for other patients, uh, your first line would be tecoverimat, which is thought to be a um, cell membrane uh, inhibitor. Beyond those, beyond that therapy, if you have severely immunocompromised patients or severe disease that is progressing, you can think about treatment with either vaccinia immunoglobulin, or you can think about sedofavir or brinzidofavir. The idea being that potentially tecovirumab may be a viral static agent, and it would be difficult to clear um, the virus if you don't have an immune response. So you use these adjuvant therapies. Obviously, the vaccinia would provide some sort of passive uh, immunity, and possibly the sedofavir, which is, again, more validated in smallpox, is a DNA polymerase inhibitor and can help clear. The downside of that treatment is renal failure. Be watchful for that. And brinsidofavir is a newer agent, which we didn't ha have access to at the time. Is something you consider. But obviously, reaching out to your ID colleagues and potentially even CDC. Thanks, Jack. Definitely a combined effort when taking care of such a complex patient. So finally, if you were to look back on this, what are some of the key learning points that you took away from this case? Yeah, so I think one of the big things is a lot of these numbers for treatment durations are numbers created as part of a study. It may not be the most definitive number. So what I learned is if I have a immunocompromised patient who has known MPOX and has either finished their tecorimat or has extension of disease, it's important to continue them on this therapy. Obviously, there's um, lingering thoughts of potential resistance in the long term, but I think in the short term, going beyond 15 days is absolutely okay. We don't have a lot of data, but if your patient is having severe disease and requiring ICU admission, definitely reach out to ID about vaccinia immunoglobulin or sedofavir, sedofavir. And then keeping in mind that while MPOX we typically associate with skin findings, GI findings, and maybe even eye involvement. It can involve the lungs and cause severe disease and ARDS. That's a great case, Jack. And so many great points that you brought up. I totally agree. Getting people on early and then, especially with an emerging disease, like thinking about what the data reflects and if your patient's different. And I love that you guys called the CDC. I feel like some of the most satisfying cases I've had have been ones where you have CDC involved or poison control involved, and you're just learning so much from them about something that's actively going. Unfortunate outcome for your patient, but it sounds like you really gave them the best chance possible with a really severe disease. Yeah, we, we definitely tried. And one last thing, sorry to add, we, we got an autopsy on this patient, and this is well after ATS, but we did confirm that on autopsy, there were areas of necrosis and bronchopneumonia seen in the lungs. 
the immunohistochemistry was positive for MPOX in the lungs. So whether that's wow. just a severe pneumonia from MPOX or ARDS, whatever you like to call it, we think it at least contributed to the respiratory failure. Yeah, it seems like it. certainly that's a, we call people having had ARDS from etiologies for much less than that. So that seems like a, a pretty definitive finding. Thanks so much. We hope that you'll submit a case for AGS 2024. Maybe it'll be back-to-back podcast years. So we appreciate your time today. Next, we have Alicia Kabadi. Alicia is a third-year pulmonary and critical care fellow at University of California, San Diego. ETS is in San Diego this coming year, so you'll have to show us all the great spots. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Thank you so much for the opportunity to present my case and be part of this exciting podcast. I'm definitely looking forward to hosting everybody this year in San Diego. Yeah, absolutely. I've never been. I'm very excited to have the have the trip. For your submission, you sent me a PowerPoint. It had an amazing title, so I'm going to use that. The title was, this is a, a forceps out tracheal mystery. I, I assume because of the knives out series, which I love. So I'm really into it. I think we should really have uh, all of our mystery cases as det- detective sleuth whodunits and framed this way. So I want to hear about your mystery case. Can you tell us what you have? Yes, absolutely. So this was a case of a 31-year-old uh, woman with a history of asthma who I took care of during my first year of fellowship. So she presented to the ER with three weeks of neck pain and progressive shortness of breath, which she at the time stated was unrelieved with an albuterol inhaler she had been previously prescribed. She told me that her asthma had been previously well-controlled and really was not using any inhaler therapy prior to her presentation, with her last use of albuterol maybe once or twice in the past year. The three weeks leading up to her presentation, however, she was requiring her albuterol inhaler multiple times per day, really without significant relief. On her her review of systems, she did note having a few skin nodules, one which had been recently diagnosed, or excuse me, recently biopsied at an outside dermatology practice, but otherwise didn't really report any cough, fevers, chest pain, or significant constitutional symptoms. Her medical history was otherwise notable for a history of smoking 30 cigarettes per day for about the past 10 years. When I saw her in the ER, her exam was fairly unremarkable. Her vitals were normal. She was saturating 99% on room air. And her pulmonary exam was overall unremarkable. She didn't have any wheezing, no rails, no ronchi, or any strider on her exam. Cardiovascular exam was unremarkable as well as the rest of her general physical exam. Um, I did note her having the two skin nodules. There was a little scar on her left upper extremity. And then she did point out another nodule on the right thigh, as well as some in the groin area she mentioned. When she was in the ER because of her neck pain, she ended up getting a CT scan of her neck to evaluate the C-spine and essentially didn't show any pathology of the C-spine, but did reveal a low attenuating mass in the upper trachea. So because of this mass, we were consulted and became involved in her case as the pulmonary physicians. She ultimately underwent a dedicated CT chest and bronchoscopy for direct visualization of this mass. Yeah, amazing. You said one thing that's so interesting. You said 30 cigarettes a day, and I guess I always say packs per day. That's one and a half packs. But when you think about it, it's 30 cigarettes. If you're only up for 12 hours, still a lot of cigarettes in a day in a pack per day. I might start saying the number like that. I like that. 
So you mentioned the CAT scan and the bronchoscopy that you had with direct imaging. These are great images. We'll definitely share them as well as the images from Jack's case. So it's cool to have the visual comparison. Can you walk us through what you saw exactly and how the bronchoscopy images helped uh, uh, confirm or move you to the next steps? Yes, absolutely. Once she got the dedicated CT scan of the chest, we did see this pretty sizable tracheal mass in the upper one-third of her trachea. The mass was actually originating from the right posterior wall of the trachea, as seen in the axial images, and measured at largest dimensions, 2.8 by 2.0 centimeters in dimension. The margins on the axial images were smooth and well-defined, and the images you can see are actually on the sagittal cut, um, which really measured the mass extending 4.3 centimeters craniocaudally. Um, on the axial images, it was noted that the trachea was narrowed at one point about 80%. So because of these findings, the patient was admitted to the hospital and underwent urgent bronchoscopy that day itself for direct visualization, which you can see in the second image here, where we have a large pedunculated polypoid lesion within the upper one-third of the trachea, again with significant luminal obstruction with about 80% obstruction with inspiration. So ultimately the mass was biopsied and she did undergo local debridement and rigid bronchoscopy with placement of a 14 by 40 millimeter bonus dent. Wow, yeah, yes. big, big mass and the tracheal compression is very scary and the pedunculated polypoid lesion comes off the tongue really nicely, so yes. I like that. So you did the, got the stent and then the pathology ultimately revealed your diagnosis. Can you take us through what the pathology images showed and what the patient had? Absolutely, yes. I do want to point out that the patient was discharged after the initial hospitalization, but did present about a week later back to the hospital with hematochesia and pretty significant anterior neck pain. So her stent was actually removed and she had a repeat bronchoscopy done at that time which didn't show uh, tumor regrowth. Of note, because of the hematochesia, she underwent colonoscopy as well, and was also found to have two gastrointestinal nodules, one at the hepatic flexure and one at the rectum, which were both excised. So the pathology we're seeing here with the, is one image C, which shows pathology from the tracheal mass, and then image D, which shows the pathology from the hepatic flexure nodule. So these are both h &E stains, essentially both showing unremarkable squamous mucosa with underlying solid growth of tumor cells, which are defined as having abundant eosinophilic granular cytoplasm with bland nuclei. So these tumor cells were actually tested for specialty stains, which are not shown here, but were positive for S100 and inhibin stains and negative for pan-keratin. Ultimately, this revealed the diagnosis of a rare tumor called granular cell tumor which did not have uh, evidence of histological properties and malignancy. Um, wow. Ultimately, we actually got her skin nodule biopsy back as well, which also demonstrated granular cell tumor, again, without histological properties and malignancy. So we concluded that these were actually all focal independent tumors rather than her having metastatic disease from one site. Wow. It's unbelievable. It's actually really so good reminder. It's so important to not just focus on your organ system and go broadly because you really could have thought differently if you didn't biopsy all of them, if you didn't have all the comparison. 
and not to scare any listeners, but if you think none of those path stains will come up, just wait till your pulmonary boards because they'll be there. <laughs> this is a very interesting case. Can you tell us some takeaways that you learned from it, some learning points that our uh, listeners can take going forward? Yes, absolutely. Granular cell tumors are rare Schwann cell benign neoplasms, and they have about 1% to 2% risk of malignant transformation. As seen in our case, these can present as multiple independent tumors, but are often seen as a single tumor. And actually, the most common site of involvement is the skin and soft tissue, with about 30 to 40% of cases having skin and soft tissue involvement, followed by the GI tract in 10 to 30% of cases, and actually rarely seen in the respiratory tract, about 2 to 3% of cases. So the clinical presentation for granular cell tumor is variable. Those with tracheal involvement, as seen in our case, can have symptoms of local invasion with dyspnea and cough, but patients are often asymptomatic as well. Really, the management depends on the type of tumor and whether there's local invasion. Generally, everything is based on symptoms and patients are managed with supportive care. As seen in our patient, she underwent local debridement and ended up getting a stent placement. There are some rare systemic therapies that can be used. There's some limited data on the use of a medication called pazopinib for unresectable tumors, tumors that have invaded into local structures. But generally, wide excision can be curative in benign tumors. There is about a 2 to 3% risk of recurrence. And so our patient has been undergoing regular bronchoscopy and debridement for tumor recurrence. Thanks, Alicia. Those are some really great and incredible cases. I always feel so fortunate to learn about all these new emerging conditions and even new presentations of even old diseases. You guys mentioned a lot of great, important lessons for our listeners. And we talked about how we look at generally look at these cases. And I know that you both clearly went above and beyond to make some powerful presentations. Moving forward and helping out all of our other uh, listeners out there who are interested in presenting similar presentations, can you guys share any tips for people submitting next year? Any types of insights you have when you picked your topics, prepared your abstracts, or interacted with your mentors would be extremely helpful to those who are thinking about submitting their cases. Start. We could start off with Jack. Sure. In terms of Making a case, I think we when we run through a differential for someone, we always go through most likely and then can't miss. Personally, I add a third category of what are the zebras that we learned about in med school that this could possibly be, because I think that's part of the fun of medicine, and I think it's why a lot of us got into it. Whenever I find myself wanting to tell a co-fellow or a co-resident about a case that I found interesting, I think maybe this is a good case. So either that's a rare presentation of something that's more common or just a rare disease and its manifestations. Um, that's how I, I picked this case. In terms of preparing and uh, submitting, I think you just gotta just do it. I'm not sure if you're looking for a Nike endorsement or not, but I think we all, through training, it's so long, we're always just waiting for permission to do things. In this situation, just read some abstracts that's been submitted, model it after a couple that are similar, and then just submit away. That's great advice. I totally agree. Just do it. If you have a case, we want to hear about it. If you need help, we have this mentorship program that's coming. You ask your mentors locally, but if you think it's interesting, I'm sure we will too. So please submit. 
Thank you, Jack and Rainia. It's been a great experience writing up this case report and sharing it with the ATS community. I think one helpful tip in picking a case report that I'll pass along is that it's really helpful to choose a case that you were closely involved in, whether it's for the entire case or at one point during the clinical course, as it gives you more insight into the case and helps in gathering main points when writing up your abstract. When I wrote up my abstract, I gathered all the information I could and then trimmed down the abstract to meet the ATS word count requirements. And I think that's the best way to make sure you include all the key points. And of course, notifying the pathologist early on helps in acquiring the images uh, needed to submit. That is a great tip, giving people a heads up before, <laughs> before you want to submit. That's great cases and great learning points for everyone. You all did an amazing job. It's a real pleasure to highlight your work. Uh, and a reminder for everyone listening to submit your case reports by November 1st, 2023. And hopefully you'll be joining us next year on this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for giving us your insights into both of these cases. And hopefully we'll see you all in San Diego next year. And just like Dave said, don't forget, for those who don't have the mentorship or the resources available, ETS has this incredible opportunity coming up. So even if you think you have a case, do not hesitate to submit it. If you do need help, we are there to help you. So look forward to seeing all you guys hopefully in San Diego. All right, we'll see you then.